Well, it brings me great delight to introduce uh, to you the Reverend Dr. Kevin DeYoung. Uh, Dr. DeYoung is uh, known uh, to most of us, I believe, in this room, and uh, many of us, uh, myself uh, included, have been very helped by his uh, writing uh, that he has faithfully done over the years. He's written uh, over a dozen uh, books. Uh, he is the senior minister of Christ Covenant Church in Charlotte, uh, North Carolina, where he has been serving for just a few years. Of course, he was at University Reformed in East Lansing uh, before that. And we're so thankful. We're, uh, none of us like the lockdown in uh, Great Britain, uh, but in this occasion, I'm sort of happy for the lockdown because Kevin is here because he was supposed to be at another conference in the UK, and uh, that, that uh, didn't happen. Uh, so, Kevin, uh, thank you so much for being with us, and we invite you to come teach us, brother. For our message this morning, I want to focus on something you've never thought of, which is if you take the go out of Goliath, <laughs> you just have lions. If you take the go out of gossip, you just have sit. That's all I could come up with. But, wow, that's going to stick with all of us. May the Lord give you something else to stick even more firmly than that message from Harry's childhood when he was 13 years old. It is really good to be with you, and I am really grateful to be speaking to you and to be with these brothers and sisters. And I hope we recall and give thanks that not only do we have the privilege of worshiping in this beautiful space and in this church, which has meant so much to many of us and to our denomination, but we have the opportunity to be with brothers and sisters and thinking for a moment and speaking directly to the pastors here that we have the opportunity to be with other like-minded brothers in the faith, numbering not in the ones or twos or threes, but in the hundreds. I have been in the PCA for fewer years than many of you, transferred in in 2015, and before that was in the Reformed Church in America. And I'll always give thanks for the denomination of my birth and many faithful men and women who poured into me and faithful sermons that I heard growing up and still have my parents in that denomination and many people that I love and there are faithful churches there. Yet I can't help but comparing that when many years ago we were trying to do something similar in the RCA and gather like-minded brothers and we try to have a conference like this, we were numbered in the dozens there are dozens of us. And to be here with you and having only been in the PCA for six years now, and yet to walk in as I did yesterday and see Mel and see John and of course Harry and David and of course Jason, my old friend and uh, pastoring University Reformed Church and Jim Alexander, who I met from spending some summers out in Colorado, and there was Matt Ucey, who you want to get an invitation from Matt to go to Hawaii to speak there. So glad we have some PCA churches there. That was a great invitation. Thank you, Matt, and Todd Pruitt. And just to see so many people that I could genuinely feel in my heart, I am glad to be with you, glad to see you, thankful for you and for your ministry and for your churches. And so let us, even with the challenges, give thanks to God that he has given us so many faithful churches, like-minded brothers that we can gather here in the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds more who are watching online. So thank you for including me as a part of this and thank you for giving me the opportunity to get to know so many of you and be your colleague and brother and Friend, It's a delight to be here and to open up God's Word for you. The title of this message, The Glory of Plotting, was given to me by John Payne. John is good at giving assignments. Thank you, brother. And he chose this because of an article that I wrote for Table Talk. Just saw 
Chris Larson here, thank you for all the many good things we get from Ligonier, Table Talk included. An article that I wrote over 10 years ago by that same title, here's what I said at the beginning of the article. What we need are fewer revolutionaries and a few more plotting visionaries. That's my dream for the church, a multitude of faithful, risk-taking plotters. The best churches are full of gospel-saturated people holding tenaciously to a vision of godly obedience and God's glory and pursuing that godliness and glory with relentless, often unnoticed, plotting consistency. Here's what I said. I promise I'm not reading this this whole article. Here's the, the very end of it. The church is not an incidental part of God's plan. Jesus did not invite people to join an anti-religion, anti-doctrine, anti-institutional bandwagon of love, harmony, and reintegration. He showed people how to live, to be sure, but he also called them to repent, called them to faith, called them out of the world, called them into the church. The Lord, as Stott said, didn't add them to the church without saving them, and he didn't save them without adding them to the church. Don't give up on the church. The New Testament knows nothing of churchless Christianity. The invisible church is for invisible Christians. The visible church is for you and me. Put away the Che Guevara t-shirts, stop the revolution, and join the rest of the plotters. 50 years from now, you'll be glad you did. I am not one given to hyperbole. Perhaps it's something in my Dutch constitution where the really worst days are a one to 10, a four, and the amazing days are a six. We're just sort of in that groove. So I'm not given to hyperbole, but it does seem to me to be the case that we are in an unusually difficult season for pastors. How many of us have heard or said over the past 14 months, these are unprecedented times. Lord, please give us precedented times once again. (laughs) I saw over the weekend different ministry leaders tweeting about the dozens of pastors they've known personally who have quit the ministry over the past year. And maybe you've seen something similar in your own networks, or maybe you're feeling something similar. Now, I know we have many people here who are not pastors, not full-time vocational ministry, but I hope if that's you, you won't mind that I'm going to use this address to speak directly to pastors. I love pastors. I love pastors who have been at it for 50 years. I love pastors who are just getting started. I love to see young men training for pastoral ministry. And so from a pastor to a pastor, I hope to give something from God's word that might encourage you because it's easy for us to just enumerate some of the bullet points, some of the reasons why this year has been so hard for pastors. Political polarization, not exaggeration, unlike any we've seen, certainly that I've seen in my lifetime. Racial tensions, masks, Oh, the masks. (laughs) We will never, so I'm just planning that we're going to preach in the evening, starting the summer, 2 Corinthians 3, and whenever we get to with unveiled face. Wow, we are never, (laughs) ever going to preach that text in the same way again. You've had to preach to empty rooms like you're doing a, a strange TV show. And as grateful as I've been for the opportunity to have people in the pandemic watch a live stream, and many of you have done something similar, there is something, it was so unnatural when you were speaking with you know, five or six tech people to an empty room, and this is not why I went to seminary to do a, a TV show. You've added services, but you're preaching to fewer people. Even in the best cases, where you may say, hey, we're kind of coming back to normal and we have 80% of our people back, I've yet to hear, even in the best case scenario, that anyone is 
really back to normal, preaching to the same size congregation you were in the same setting, just like you were 15 months ago. Some of us have pastors have not stood in the back of the church to shake our people's hands in over a year. I just did it for the first time last Sunday. And I'll tell you, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a borderline introvert, extrovert, so uh, I, I can't say that I got into ministry to do the greeting line after church. I remember Alistair Begg saying how many times he felt like he just wanted to sort of like, you know, the witch and the wizard about just wanted to dissolve into the ground and just sort of, you know, can, can we be done with this? But I was almost in, in tears after a year to be able to stand in the back and say, I'll shake your hand, I'll give you a fist bump, um, even for a Dutchman, I'll give you a hug if you want. And to see our people, you haven't been able to visit people in the hospital. There's been few social gatherings. One-on-one -on -one discipleship has been difficult. You are tired of Zoom, for sure. It's been hard to dream or to plan or to cast vision. Your horizon of vision has not been months or years or what we dreamed to do in 20 years, but okay, what do we have to do for the next two weeks? What, what, what's our, our stance on small groups and meeting in the church and whether we have nursery or not? You've had to deny that most basic of pastoral instinct, and you've had to move away from people instead of toward people. And on top of all of that, there is for many of us a growing sense that ministry as we've known it maybe won't work anymore. Or people will tell us it isn't really going to address the truly important problems in life. And if you don't change what you've been doing and how you're doing it, it's not simply that you may be ineffective, you're actually part of the problem. And I want to tell you and exhort you, brother pastor, don't give up. Now, to be sure, it, it's, it's not wrong that you might move to a different ministry. It's not wrong you might move to a different kind of ministry. In fact, it's not always wrong that a man might conclude after prayer and much counsel, perhaps for a season or perhaps for good, that he's moving away from vocational ministry. I don't want people to feel ashamed that these are wrong decisions, but simply listen to this. Before you make that decision to step away from ministry, consider how hard and unusual this last year has been. We all know the advice is pastors, don't make major life decisions on Monday morning or Sunday night. If you had to fill out, you know, if you had, a, you had to renew your contract with the church every morning, a Monday morning, we'd all be out of ministry and then come Friday, we'd say, I, I, I got something to say, can I get back in this? So it has been like a year of Monday mornings, and we have to realize that we may not be seeing straight. We're spent, we're exhausted, we're often discouraged. As you press on in ministry, let me exhort you not to change the basics of what you have been doing. Of course, it's a truism that we always have to look at things that may change, and sometimes maybe the pandemic helps us realize, well, things we were doing that we thought were essential really weren't essential, or maybe there's something necessary that we need to change about our approach to ministry. So change is not bad, necessarily, and yet, unless you can convince me that the human predicament has changed, and that the chief problem in the world has changed, namely human rebellion against God, then let us not be convinced that the basics of our ministry need to change. Unless you weren't attending to that need before the pandemic, let us not change the basics of what we were doing on the other side of the pandemic. Keep a close watch on your life and doctrine. Keep yourself in the love of God. Keep plodding. I want you to turn to 2 Timothy. 
almost as predictable as speaking about mission from Matthew 28 is speaking to pastors from 1st or 2nd Timothy or Titus. I want to draw to your attention a few different passages. I want you to note verse 14 in chapter 3. There's a sweet word here. I hope you find it to be an encouraging word for your pastor weary soul. But as for you, continue. Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Continue. It does not say, and as for you, reinvent everything. As for you, it's time to start the revolution. It says, as for you, Timothy, okay? You got a lot going on here. Here's the word. Keep going. Continue. You look back at chapter 2 and you just note some of these words, which I hope would be an encouragement to us. Verse 8, remember? Remember Jesus Christ. Remember the gospel. Next paragraph, verse 14, remind them, remind them of these things. We have people who forget and leak the gospel. Ours must be a ministry constantly that we remember Jesus Christ, we remind them of these things. Do you find verse 15 encouraging? I do. Do your best. You can't do better than that. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Remember, remind them, do your best. In other words, continue, keep plodding along. I assign in my pastoral ministry class the wonderful book by D.A. Carson about his Father and Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor about his father, Tom Carson, who pastored in Canada in the midst of much opposition and never pastored a church more than a, several dozen people, 50, 60 people, was one who worked extremely hard, often filled with self-doubts, self-recriminations. Often, um, if you've read that book, it's almost painful to read how hard he was on himself. And, and, and I assigned that, and with all, it's 150 pages, with all of the great books that you read in seminary, inevitably I have students say, that may have been the best book that I read in seminary, or certainly that was one of my favorite books, and they have to write a, a paper to me. And I have so many students who write and who tell me, I read this with tears because I, I, I feel like Tom Carson. And be encouraged. This is true at RTS. This is true, I'm sure, at Westminster and Greenville and other seminaries represented here. But these, these young men tell me, that's what I want to do. I just want to be an ordinary, faithful pastor. Tell you one of the great encouragements I have when I teach pastoral ministry. I give them their final assignment is they have to write a paper about one ministry model, living and dead. And uh, if, if they're men in the class training for pastoral ministry, they pick a pastor, and there are women in the class training for not pastoral ministry, but campus work or counseling work, and they can pick sometimes different men or women that have influenced them. And of course, to read about the dead heroes is, is great, and there's a lot of Calvin and Edwards and Bunyan and Spurgeon and Chrysostom and Athanasius and heroes we would expect. To read about the living heroes, uh, it's so encouraging. I have read papers about several of you in this room some of them you may not even have known. Some of them are your children, grandchildren. 
Some of them are students that you've had in your church when they were in college or they grew up under your ministry. You're making a difference. You may not see it. I, I, I read it. These men who, who write with such deep, moving testimony of the faithfulness of their local pastors, of their local church from whom they learned the gospel. And, and men, they're not just listening to you, they're watching you. And they're seeing how you endure suffering. They're seeing how you raise your family. They're paying attention to your prayers. They're, they're paying attention when you talk to them, when you ask them questions, when you laugh with them. They're watching your life and your doctrine. Continue in what you have learned. I want you to note from 2 Timothy three different exhortations. I had four, one from each chapter, but for the sake of time, let's just do three. Look at the exhortation in chapter two, verse one. Three, three exhortations for you. I got one from chapter two, one from chapter three, one from chapter four. Here's the first one. Men, do not give up on training the next generation. You see verse one, you all know this verse, you then my child be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Of course, this is applicable to all kinds of discipleship, but it is explicitly applicable to pastoral ministry. Paul means to strengthen his child in the faith, Timothy. Timothy, in turn, passes on the gospel to faithful men, and they, in turn, will teach others. That's how it's supposed to work. Pastors training young men who then go and teach their flocks. Recently, I was emailing back and forth with Rick Phillips. I know Rick wanted to be here. I think he has a, a, a family event that prevented him. And he says at the end of this email to me, and I made a note of it, he said, keep preaching the gospel and training preachers of God's word. It is there and not the internet that the future lies. If I said it like Rick, I would say it much louder than that. <laughs> He's right. Now, I'm not sure if he meant the internet is not going to train preachers, or if he meant winning the battles on the internet is not the heartbeat of ministry. I take it to be the latter, but both sentiments have a measure of truth. Of course, the internet can help in training pastors. It certainly does, and we're all thankful for all sorts of resources and courses and, and blogs and podcasts and all sorts of ways that we're blessed. There's people watching this right now on the internet. The internet at its best is a marketplace of ideas and a conduit through which good gospel truth is communicated, and yet all of us would agree that it's not a substitute for life-on-life -life ministry. And surely, Rick is correct in telling us that our ministry faithfulness will not ultimately be measured by how many Twitter scalps we can get. Have you ever had this happen online? And this is someone who, I write stuff online, so physician heal thyself, okay? I understand it, it's not all a waste of time. But how often have you had people say in your Twitter feed, Facebook comments, hey, thanks for that. And then they write these words, I changed my mind. Nope. <laughs> that was amazing, after reading that, I've completely changed my mind. Now, yes, there is a strengthening, there is a providing of discernment. So by all means, as you have opportunity, and I will continue to do so, you put good content out there. But there can be this temptation to think that where the real ministry is happening is on Twitter. You do realize that, what do they say, 10% of Americans are, are on Twitter, and 10% of Twitter users put out 90% of the content. So you, you have less than 1% slice of real life is your Twitter feed. So let us not gauge what's happening in our culture, happening in our churches, even happening in our denomination, just by what we read from the most active people online. Do not neglect 
this task to invest in young men for the training of the gospel. Yes, the work is slow. It may feel like too little. People may tell you there's a world to change or transform, okay? I believe in wanting things to change, and I'm going to do it by investing in this one life or having these three interns or discipling these college students. It is a crucial task. It's certainly the way Jesus did things. As you look back over your life, perhaps coming to the end of your life or many, many decades from now, what do you hope to show for yourself? You hope to show for yourself many internet battles in which you proved victorious. <laughs> or might there be five men whose lives you shaped and sent into pastoral ministry? Or maybe 50, or maybe someone will have 500, but even five that are pastoring and preaching faithfully God's word. Men, do not give up on training the next generation. Here's the second word of exhortation and encouragement. We'll turn to chapter three. Do not give up on being an example to the flock. You see in verse 10 of chapter three, you, however, so there's a contrast with everything that has come before, in verses 1 through 9, this long litany of vice in the world, lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient, ungrateful, unholy, all the rest. You, however, you're different. You have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings. Do not give up on setting an example for the flock. Churches don't mean to do this, but too many of them do. They will hold your feet to the fire with what you must do more than concerning who you ought to be. Too many churches prize the gifts of the Spirit more than the fruit of the Spirit. They demand accomplishments from their pastors more than they demand character from their pastors. And what's true in the church is even more true in the world. The world cares more about the virtue you signal than the virtue you possess. The world does not care if your life is worth following so long as you support the causes they follow. You think about it, the Bible gives actually few specific commands to pastors. Now, we have several in the pastoral epistles. They tend to be quite broad and general. The Bible has much more to say about who you are than what you do. You've all taught on the requirements for the office of elder, and you've all noted that all of the requirements are character requirements, except that he would be apt to teach. All the rest have to do with the sort of man that you are, the sort of example, the, the, the tupos, the mold, the type, the person into which you, you, you could draw others and say, you see my pastor? You want to know what it looks like to be a mature Christian? Follow my pastor as he follows Christ. That doesn't mean you're sinless, of course not, but it means that when you sin, they would see you repent. It means that when you fail, they would see you get up. It means that when you lose your patience with your children, they would see you go and apologize to your children. You would be that mold, that example. The Bible gives very few specific commands towards our accomplishments and many specific requirements for our character. So perhaps some of us this morning need to be reminded that what does it profit a man if he gains an entire denomination but forfeits his soul? Are you attending to the nurture and the care of your soul as a Christian? There's this wonderful challenge and encouragement. I've preached on it so many times from Second Peter. Add to your faith knowledge and goodness and 
all of these virtues. And then it says, if you have these qualities in increasing measure, you will not be found unfruitful or ineffective. The secret, the open secret to effective ministry is that you are a growing Christian. If you have these things in increasing measure, you will not be unfruitful. Now, you may not have a big church. You may not win the day online. You may see people fall into all sorts of problems and errors, but you and I will not be unfruitful or ineffective in ministry if we ourselves are growing as Christians. Let people see our love, our joy, our peace. You see at the end of chapter two, last paragraph, flee youthful passions, pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. It takes great wisdom, doesn't it, to know what are the fights we must fight? Not every hill is worth dying on, but some are, and it takes godly wisdom to know which are which. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. God is more concerned with who you are, brother pastor, than what sort of accomplishments you may have to show for yourself. Do not neglect the care of your own soul. And don't let others put upon you the sort of burden where faithful pastoral ministry requires 30 hours a day. Any conception of ministry that requires you to sleep less than Jesus did is not the right conception of ministry. And, and, and we can put it upon ourselves. I gotta be at every meeting, I gotta be in every hospital room, I gotta be in every discipleship, I gotta care for every soul, I gotta preach every time, I gotta speak at all of these things. We can put it on ourselves and people outside can put it upon us. Well, pastor, yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. I know, I appreciate that, you, you know, you're marrying and you're bearing and you're baptizing and you're preaching, but what are you doing to transform our community? Well, I'm marrying, I'm burying, I'm praying, I'm preaching. And you feel as if you have to be not only an expert in a thousand other things other than the Bible, but you must be involved in a hundred other things in your own local church. And sometimes I want to say to well-meaning people who, who are imploring me for all of the, the great community building and all of the activism and all the things I have to do about this issue, whatever it is. It can be somebody's issue from the right and abortion, someone's from the left and racial justice. I want racial justice. I want to see an end to abortion. And you know what? I pray about those things. You know, I try to model the, the right sort of virtue in my life. And when I come to a text that deals with these things, I, I preach about it. And as there's opportunity, I, I include it in the pastoral prayer. When people sort of, yes, but what are you really doing? I want to say, what? Where are you finding extra hours? Which child should I neglect? Or which additional children should I neglect besides the ones I already am? What, what, what would you not have me do that I'm doing now? Do not put the burden upon yourself or have others put it upon you that to be a faithful minister in Christ's church, you have to work more hours than there are in the day. Obedience to Christ must be simpler than that and does not require you to be an expert in a dozen fields and give yourself to every good cause. Rather, you must be the sort of person worth following. And do you see how this cuts both ways? It's an encouragement and it's a challenge. The encouragement is, okay, it's, it's simpler than I thought. And, and maybe it's actually, by God's grace, possible within a 24-hour span of each day. So there's an encouragement, but here's the challenge. It means you actually need to be someone worth following. 
Because truth be told, I think some of us are drawn to every sort of other hyperactivity because that's actually easier than being silent and still with the Lord, actually hearing from him in the scriptures and like the dragon scales of Edmund, you know, God stripping away the things he needs to do in our own heart. That's harder sometimes. Let me give you one last exhortation. It's what you might expect from 2 Timothy chapter 4. Brothers, don't give up on preaching. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. It would be almost impossible to overstate the importance of preaching. You'd be hard-pressed to state it any more strongly than Paul does in these verses. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, years ago, giving those famous lectures just over, what, 50 years ago at Westminster, but ultimately my reason for being very ready to give these lectures is that to me the work of preaching is the highest and greatest and most glorious calling to which anyone can ever be called. If you want something in addition to that, I would say without any hesitation that the most urgent need in the Christian church today is true preaching. And as it is the greatest and most urgent need in the church, it is obviously the greatest need of the world also. Many of us probably read that book sometime in seminary, or, or, or perhaps that book was instrumental in drawing us towards ministry. We, we resonated with the romance of preaching that Lloyd-Jones, yes, it's the most important thing in the church and therefore the most important thing in the world. And I wonder now, years later for some, decades later for others, do you still believe it? Seldom can the pew rise higher than the pulpit. The preaching sets the spiritual tone for the church. It sets the direction. It is the word which calls out a people, forms a people, builds up a people, sends forth a people. Amos 8 tells us of all the chastisements that Israel suffered, the famine of drink, famine of bread, blight, pestilence, defeat at their enemies. The most severe was a famine, not of food or of drink, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Our culture has all sorts of objections to preaching. Monologue is bad and certainty is bad and people don't listen to sermons and they can't pay attention. They don't like authority. We've heard that all. Sometimes it's Christians, it's even preachers who lose confidence in preaching. We lose confidence in the text. Not that it's true, but that it works. That it matters. It's a book I read several years ago. I won't mention the title. You've probably not read it. It's not a great book. In fact, this line is positively terrible. This author is talking about seven pastoral sins. He says sin number two is, quote, believing that preaching will change them. This is a, this is a book, a ministry book. He writes about a fictional pastor, Jason. Holopolis. No, just Jason, he says. <laughs> it actually is Jason. Jason has begun to labor under the mistaken notion that if he preaches well enough, people will be changed. Jason was told in seminary that preaching is the most important thing a pastor does. No, Jason, it's the most important thing in preaching class, but it's not all that big a deal to grandma and grandpa out there in the pew. A Christian book saying exactly what the devil would have us believe. Pastor, do you still believe in the power of preaching? That locking yourself away in your study for those hours is not neglecting the pastoral care of your people, but it is doing what is most important for the pastoral care of your people. I, I fear that sometimes in our circles where we all affirm, we all know the right answer, we all, yes, expositional preaching, yes, preaching is so important, but I sometimes wonder 
If we are more committed to the right kind of preaching, expositional, gospel-centered, focused on the cross, then we are really committed to the effectiveness of preaching. It sure doesn't seem like it always is effective, does it? You, you, if you preach long enough and you really real resonate with Paul. Yeah, it feels like the folly of preaching. Is it, this is what you got? Word and sacrament? Word and prayer? This, this is what we have? Lord, if you, I stand up week after week to the same people, the same, <laughs> the same jokes after a while, same stuff, and, and they hear from me, talk about the same Jesus. This is, what, this is what you came up with, God. Yes. How did he create the world? He spoke. What did he say to Lazarus? Come forth! And such was the power of his word, he came forth. I remember an old preacher saying, and it's a good thing that Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, because if he had just said, come forth, all of the dead would have come out of their tombs. Such is the power of the word of Christ. It's true. There's power in the word. Do we still have confidence that the word of God is effective for the work of God? Paul believed in preaching. He could not have stated this command to young Timothy in terms any more solemn with an oath formula reminiscent of the Old Testament. He says with this fourfold oath in the presence of God, as God himself watches over you, as God helps you, as the glory of God surrounds you, and in the presence of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. So Christ will judge you, Timothy, and Christ will be the judge of your hearers. So preach to them. Tell them of Christ. Tell them of the ark that will lead them to safety in the midst of the flood of God's judgment. You remember what Paul says when he's speaking in Acts chapter 20, and he says, my hands are innocent of the blood of you all because he has warned them, he has spoken to them, the whole counsel of God. And it's that imagery from Ezekiel, the watchman on the walls, that if he sees the approaching army coming and he does not sound the trumpet, then he will be held liable. And Paul says, I I I'm innocent of your blood. I've told you. May it never be in any one of our churches that someone sitting under our ministry could stand before Christ someday and say, no one ever told me there was a judgment coming. No one told me I needed a savior. They told me how to be a good person. They told me a lot of things that needed to get better. They did not tell me that I was a sinner in need of a savior, and now I am standing before the judge. May it never be that such a testimony could be given from any of our PCA churches. In view of the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing, that he will come again, and by his kingdom, his coming kingdom, his arrived kingdom, the kingdom you are a part of, the kingdom you're praying for, he gives this solemn injunction after that fourfold oath. Preach the word. As one author put it, gospel preaching is the chariot that King Jesus rides to victory. I've always loved the definition from John Murray. Preaching is personal, passionate pleading. He's a herald. You know you're Greek, you know it's a different word than a teacher calls himself an apostle, apostolos, a didaskalos, a teacher, and a caruso, a carux, one who heralds, one who says like Isaiah, behold your God, one who says, hear ye, hear ye, I have a message from the king. Preaching has teaching, of course, but there is a difference. Just as Lloyd-Jones famously said, there's a difference between preaching about the gospel and preaching the gospel to your people. 
You preach about the gospel, you sort of, it's over here to the side, you tell people how it works. There's sinners, there's a savior, there's a cross, there's an atonement for sin. Here's how, there's justification according to faith through grace. Here's how the whole thing works. I'm preaching about the gospel versus preaching the gospel to your people to look them in the eye. You need a savior. You will stand before the judgment seat of Christ one day. Have you had your sins forgiven? Have you turned from your sins? That's to preach the gospel with all the force of direct, spirit-given unction, personal, passionate pleading. We see this preacher here as one who is prepared in season, out of season. He's ready to minister as necessary, reproof, rebuke, exhort, but he doesn't do so from an angry heart, but he does so with great patience. You want a preacher who is passionate, one who even has certain righteous indignation, but never one who is fundamentally mean or unkind, one who says the hardest things through the hardest tears, able to teach. I once heard it said, it's one of these stories, I don't know if it's true, but I hope it is, that Billy Graham once said that if he had to do it all over again, he would have accepted fewer speaking invitations and he would have done two things more. He would have prayed more, he would have studied more. That when he did speak, it could have been even more effective. Technique can make an orator. Theology makes a preacher. And I would dare say that a man should not be the preaching pastor if he does not like to learn that we would be constantly expanded and challenged, that we would be faithful in the whole counsel of God, not riding hobby horses, but preaching not only the meaning of each text, but the mood of each text. So let me encourage you as I encourage my own heart. The seed that the farmer sows and seems for so long to be nothing and he sleeps and rises and sleeps, he rises. And that famous parable in Mark 4 says, the seed sprouts up. He knows not how. In the Greek it says automate, automatically. What does the farmer do? The farmer does two things in that parable. He sows and he sleeps. How's that for a ministry description? I'll sow a lot and I'll sleep a lot. Now, Paul says here in 2 Timothy, the hard-working farmer, we know farmers work hard, but the point of Jesus' parable is obviously the great harvest at the end was not because of the ingenuity of the farmer, but because of the inherent power in the seed that was sown. You remember why they marveled at Jesus, Matthew 7, the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Why did they marvel? He taught not like the scribes. What was so different? Wow, Jesus, you're different. You tell the best stories. You're, you're funny. You, I can tell how kind you are. All sorts of things they could have said. No, you stand out to us because unlike the scribes, you preach as one who has, remember the word, authority. Obviously, Jesus has a unique authority. Ours is a derived authority, but it is an authority nonetheless. You preach this message with authority. Some people will hate it. They always did wherever Paul went. Half the people said, come back and tell us this, and half the people said, get out of this town before we kill you. But he spoke with authority, believing that God was able to do the work. Keep at it. Open the books, study yourself full, pray yourself hot, preach yourself empty, and you'll have many, many, many Sundays that feel like nothing. I feel like that most Sundays. My wife has to, and some of you have the wife who, you know, she's, she's my best critic. I don't want my wife to be, I want my wife to tell me things, I want her to tell me what I want to hear. <laughs> I want my wife to remind me of what I forget by the time I get home on Sunday. 
Devin, you preach the word. You're faithful. Remember? Remember? So often it feels as if, what, what did that do? Especially now, can't see the church grow, can't even see, hear most of the people. Hardly any pastor doesn't feel that. I remember, or I'm almost done. I remember, I mean, John and Harry set, set such a great precedent for just keep going. <laughs> Thank you, brother. So one, one story. I was at a conference years ago, and um, Sinclair Ferguson, who we would all, you know, if we were handing out preaching prizes, many of us, okay, just take them all and go. <laughs> and uh, he was preaching, and he, th he thought that it was a, tell me afterward, he thought it was like a minister's conference, but it was a, a young people's conference, and he was supposed to, he was speaking on the Trinity or something, and so he, he did this message, typical Sinclair. It was, it was amazing, and he's taking us up into the seventh heaven, talking about the Trinity and all of the, the glories, and I was walking out with him afterward just saying, thank you, Dr. Ferguson, that was so encouraging. And he says, and I apologize, David, for this accent I'm about to do, but he said, oh, Kevin, that was a dog's breakfast. And I thought, your dog eats very well. <laughs> but there was some encouragement that even, even the great ones get done and feel like, what in the world was that? Did that do anything? Your ministry, as you faithfully sow the seed, will reap more of a harvest than you or I can see. It is God's grace, perhaps, to hide to us the fruit that might be there in order that we might see it at the end, lest we would become proud. Steady on, brothers. Keep preaching. Keep loving your people. Keep plodding. The Lord knows those who are his. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you, by your spirit, encourage our hearts my heart, these hearts. Many here are, are in ministry of other kinds or simply wanting to hear good teaching for these days, and we're grateful for them. We pray now in particular, though, for the pastors in this room, the pastors watching this. Would you encourage them in the work that you have called them to? Their labors are not in vain. Give us grace to do our best. That's all we can do. And when we have done our best to say we are but unworthy servants and to trust not in ourselves, not in our degrees, not even in our hard preparation and study, but in the word, Lord, keep us faithful to this task. Help us to continue, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.